Hello, and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Well, it is that time once again, believe it or not, and we are launching our Academy Awards coverage today. Right before the holidays, the Academy released the short list of 10 films to be considered in the best sound category. And I'm happy to report that five of those films have already appeared on this podcast with their sound teams talking about the extraordinary work that's gone into some of the tracks this year. We're hoping to bring as many of these films to this podcast as possible in the coming weeks. Today, we are discussing the harrowing new adaptation of the classic novel of World War I, All Quiet on the Western Front. The film is notable in that it is the first ever German language adaptation of the book made by German filmmakers, and it has an appropriately incredible Dolby Atmos mix which you can experience in the Netflix app if you watch it with the German language track enabled. We will have a link as always in our show notes. Joining us today is the film's writer and director, Edward Berger, co-sound designers, Frank Cruz and Marcus Stemmler, re-recording mixer, Lars Genzel, and production sound mixer, Victor Presel. So as I said, this film has been shortlisted for the Academy Award for Best Sound. And as the director, Edward Berger, says in the interview, this team has quite the pedigree when it comes to sound awards in Germany. Uh, and it is an incredible honor for a foreign language film to be shortlisted for the Best Sound Academy Award. So it was a great pleasure for me to have this team on the show today to talk about the film. So I started off the conversation by asking Edward, the writer and director, why he wanted to tackle this project and why he felt it was an ideal time to do so. Well, I got a call from my good friend and producer, Malte Grunert, about three years ago, two and a half years ago. And he asked me if I were interested in making this film. And I immediately responded viscerally, almost physically, uh, with an urge to say yes. Yeah, because it's the book is, and I realized, even though I had forgotten I actually was angry that I hadn't thought of this myself, that I needed a bloody producer to come up with the idea. So, um, and I thought, like, why didn't I think of this? And so, so, but I immediately thought this could be really interesting. It could be a major challenge and it could be very interesting because the book is kind of has been within me for decades. And I've read it a couple of times and then I read it, read it again for writing and prep. Um, and so it's, and I realized how much it was within me and that it's, that it's somehow part of our DNA in a way. It's a part of our cultural heritage. And I did feel besides a, a, probably an, an incredible amount of idiocy in hindsight, uh, but that we had, that there was an American film made before and that this was different because we grew up in Germany. And we grew up differently from American filmmakers or British filmmakers who usually get to make these films. And they get to make it with their heritage. And their heritage is so different from ours. They're, you're, you're born in America. Your country was roped into wars by Europe twice. And sort of you, 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 you liberated Europe from fascism in the Second World War. And that leaves a very different feeling in your gut, you know, in your, within your ancestors. And they hand that down to you. They hand that DNA down to you. There's a sense of honor about it, the sense of a sense of pride, maybe. But looking back, and you celebrate uh, the, those people that helped helped that cause. And in Germany, there's nothing to celebrate. You know, there's nothing to uh, be proud of. There's nothing to. Uh, um, you know, there's no honor in it. There's just a sense of shame or guilt or responsibility towards that history. And it felt important to me to make a movie where we make decisions, you know, every on every day we make decisions that inform that movie. And those in, in decisions are are sort of formed by how we grew up, by, about how we are. And I thought 
if we let our how we grow up, if we let those those feelings inside of us inform those decisions, ideally in the end we'll have a very different movie than an American or British movie, and it might be interesting to add to that dialogue, you know, in in to to add to that genre. And that was a big reason why I thought uh, uh, we could make this film now. And and then also there is a. Um, there was a rising sense of nationalism around the world, in America, in England, in Europe, right-wing parties being voted into office. And I suddenly heard speech on the street, and in, especially in parliaments, but that trickles down to the street, that I thought I, you know, they used last in Germany in, in the 30s, probably. And I felt scared by that, and I thought it might be the right time to, to, make, a, to make a film about about a, where that led to a hundred years ago. It's a great point. And I especially, um, uh, I appreciate what you were saying about, um, that it's, uh, it, you know, in Germany, it's nothing to be proud of and it's very, and it's, and it's a shameful episode, but at the same time, I think that you, you unlocked, uh, this empathy and sympathy by focusing on the boys in the trenches and establishing a contrast between them and the generals and the government officials, and I want to talk more about that uh, as we get into the conversation about sound. But there's so many moments in the sound and in, in the film that are so brilliantly set up for sound. And I was curious, were you so Edward, when you were writing the script, were you thinking about, were you hearing the sound of the film as you were writing? Because so many of the so many of the the moments that that you shot and set up in the film seem like they are perfectly lending themselves to really creative sound work. Yeah, I mean, first of all. Uh, I've been wanting to work with the sound team for ages and somehow they never were available. And, um, you, you know, you have to know that I would call them the Meryl Streep of the German sound designers. They have been nominated and, and, and mixers. They have been nominated so many times for German film awards. It's ridiculous. You know? It's probably 25 times or so. I lost count. And you try to get them and then they never have time or they're on more ambitious projects or so. And so I thought this time around, maybe I can entice them to come and board this film because it's challenging enough. And it, 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 it's, uh, and it, it, and I had geeked out on a lot of conversation. Whenever I meet Frank in, at, at events or so, I steer towards him and I say like, you know what? I really want to make a mono, a sound in mono one day. Because um, there's this movie called Downhill Racer with Robert Redford. And I remember watching, and the sound is so precise and focused on the skis, yeah, and on the, I don't know, the tissues that he rips out of the, and Frank told me, well, it's because it's mono, you know, it's really, it's really that one sound source. And then, and it's so silent and still, and so I'm a very big stickler for clear sound effects and precise sound and and feel it, and it has an immense emotional effect on the audience and on me, you know, on me, and so, and hopefully on the audience. And so, while I was while I was shooting it, uh, it's not only it's it's on every level, uh, or planning it on every level. The film is very much about contrast too. You mentioned the generals and the soldiers. That's thematically that's one, but there's also between. Uh, destruction and peace, noise and silence, um, 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 a, a battle and exhaustion, um, wide shots and close-ups, so uh, darkness and light. So a lot of it is uh, in contrast. And I love abrupt sound cuts, really hard sound cuts, because they always shake me awake in the movie theater. I always go, oh, God, something changed. And I have to change pace and I have to listen up. Um, and so we we had talked about and thought a lot about before about those contrasts and those hard sound cuts uh, uh, that lent themselves to a, a rich design. I think. Yeah. Well, Frank and Marcus, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, your initial impressions of the film? Um, did Edward show you a script before he went out and shot, or how? At what at what point in the process did you all get involved? Yeah, Edward sent me a script, I think, about a year before they started shooting, I believe, a first draft. And I started reading it. I was I was pretty excited about it. And then 
I realized we were still in the first battle when I was, when I was on page 60 and I, I thought like, oh my God, where this thing is going to be massive. And uh, yeah, and then it changed more to a more uh, narrative um, version later. And I knew what was coming and then COVID hit pretty hard. And uh, yeah, so I immediately anticipated uh, that on this film, we wouldn't, have a chance to like go to the uh, go on set and and capture extra extra sounds because i usually i know that the production sound mixer is super busy uh you know with focus on dialogue etc getting that as clean as possible and uh and usually on other films marcus and myself we would go on set even during the shoot is still ongoing and then to to take some strain off the production sound crew and record whatever we can grab on set, like mostly focused on on uh, crowd, historical vehicle, vehicles, obviously, uh, especially on this one. So I knew that wouldn't be possible on this film. So I had an early on conversation with uh, Victor, who was the you know uh, then was was. Um, asked to come on as a production sound mixer, and was really really. Uh, relieved and excited uh, to find out that he had worked through the script as well just like myself make taking notes you know which scenes would need uh would be very important to to grab the original dirt and mud and wet and basically all all the original grit that that is so important to to bring home from set to to uh you know make the sound work and keep it alive and not kind of reconstruct everything in retrospect by just getting rid of all the production, whatever is not dialogue, just throw it all out and then reconstruct it, it, everything from scratch. So that, that's not something I really look forward to on, on films like this, because since the film and what came later in camera was so detailed and so like analog in a way there was so many effects that were done in camera and was so inspiring we wanted to really to to have that kind of original uh, all the mud and the grit and and the original feel and so i talked to victor and we flagged all the important sounds like the the crowd and was like i said i was really uh, uh glad that he had kind of the same idea and he brought in uh extra personnel but maybe he, he will tell that story himself like to to capture these sounds with with the focus on crowd like people like the screams and everything and the original vehicles we really i i asked him to capture as just grab as much as he can and bring that home from set because we just knew covid would prevent anyone from outside to step on that uh, set during the shoot well, Victor, that really kind of uh, queued up a question that I have for you. This looks like it was a very difficult film to shoot. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, Frank talked about the mud and the grit and the dirt. Uh, you really got a sense of the horrible conditions in the trenches for these guys. And of course, I'm watching the film thinking the horrible conditions for the production sound mixer as well to capture in those circumstances. And I'm sure those, I'm sure those period vintage costumes were quite noisy uh, as well. And there were lots of munitions and pyrotechnics going off. So Victor, can you talk about the process of capturing the production sound and, uh, and how you were able to, uh, uh, to get as clean a recordings as you did? Well, the battle scenes were really challenging, uh, but we had a good idea from the pre-production what uh, to expect. Pre-production was extremely uh, important to us, especially the cooperation with the costume department. We did a couple of tests during the costume fittings to find the right place where to put radios. That was a crucial thing. We also knew from James Friend, the DOP, that he would be using uh, len wide lenses and everything will be in motion. So we had to be 100% sure with our radios, radio mics. So every actor uh, from the main group was wearing two radio mics, uh, one in costume and one in helmet. There were several reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons was dynamic range. Uh, the actors were going from whispering to screaming in one take. So uh, 
so each of the radios would set the the different sensitivity. And the another reason was because the actors were crawling or running or pointing a gun. So the microphone in the costume wasn't always usable, unfortunately. Uh, and what we knew from the beginning was uh, the bread is uh, absolutely essential for us and for the movie. I would say as important as the dialogue uh, because the bread completely drops you into the action and helmets were essential in this because we could get really close with the microphone and actors can turn their head and uh, it was still there. They could do everything what they wanted and it worked great, I would say. And about uh, about the location, uh, that that was crazy, yeah. Uh, incredible muddy, and it was difficult just to move around the set. Uh, many times we were stuck in the mud, people were losing their shoes there, like really, I've never seen that before. So uh, big thanks to all my crew, because it was extremely physical demanding, you know. But the advantage of the location was that we shot in the former military uh, area, military training centers. So there was no traffic, uh, no people, no civilians, no planes flying, but that was because the pandemic. But how we did deal with the noisy scenes uh, and during the entire shooting and what I really appreciate was the number of wild tracks we recorded. Uh, we did a lot of, of them, like uh, really a lot. Uh, after each scene, we decided with Edward if we needed to, to record something or not. Uh, Edward was completely open to do it. Uh, he even directed extras on set uh, during the wild tracks uh, or doing some follies himself was was incredible so it was a great col uh, collaboration with uh, with him and without his patience for sound we would never have made such a good uh, sound on set i would say you just cannot get these um sounds again you know we had sometimes 250 350 extras rushing across the field shouting hooray yeah about about you know, being able to go into battle. You know? And I wanted that sound. And I knew I'm not going to get 350 extras to shout it on a field in Berlin with Frank. You know, yes, we can loop it and, you know, do crowd recordings with 20 people, but it's a different, it was a different feeling. And I wanted really to get that. It's almost like getting the shot, you know, get that wild track. You will never get it again. And it'll always be in this film. And so we really wanted to take advantage of those moments and, and, and capture it, like also with the vehicles that Frank mentioned. There's not many vehicles in Europe from 1917 that still drive. And we had four of them. And so we, rec we needed to record them because we weren't going to yeah. get them back. Yeah, Frank, so, so did, you, did you have a wish list that you asked Victor and his team to get for you of those uh, of vehicles and whatnot? The wish list was pretty simple. It was just... Just get everything you can, you know, literally um, everything that's possible, everything that's interesting. Even what I really love about uh, love to to preserve in films like these are like even the mistakes, the so-called like something that we would call like, you know, unusable sound is super important to get these, you know, get close to the uh, to the characters when they fall into the mud, have the, you know, even have the the microphone bumping into the dirt and stuff like that. It makes it really visceral and, and like gets you, gets the audience into the action because this film is so much about, you know, moving from first person perspective to, to an observer and back. So even, even getting all that stuff in there, even the, the mistakes was important, but this thing was really wild track paradise. I must say, uh, like Edward said, all the vehicles were captured in multi-tracks, you know, high sample rates, etc. Everything was there. These huge crowd recordings with multiple microphones, surround mics, extra booms at the same time, plus laughs, etc. So I don't know, Marcus, do you want to, I think you counted them at some point. It was a crazy number. I was so impressed 
uh, by what we received from set and so the library i can't remember a movie we've worked on where we received such an extensive uh, library of wild tracks actually it was maybe close to 400 or something and then apart from the wild tracks even every take was, was gold for us because uh, before or after or during the take, there were always uh, snippets which um, uh, might not have ended up in the in the actual uh, edit. But for us, sound-wise, uh, there were lots of snippets that had so much character and, and uh, sparked ideas for us. Uh, some of them we've used... Uh, um, as elements, other ones were just, uh, yeah, brought us further in thinking about how things could sound. And uh, the sheer load of material was was huge. Like, uh, and yeah, for us, it was the, the perfect uh, starting point, actually. I wanted to ask you about that because, um, Edward, you mentioned that that there were, you had a very small number of, of authentic period vehicles um, that you had access to. And, I, you know, Obviously, these events happened over a hundred years ago. So, what was your process for approaching the various kinds of munitions, ordnance, um, you know, the actual war sounds that the guys are hearing in the field? And obviously, I'm, I'm sure not much of that stuff exists anymore. So, how did you even have a sense of what the guys had experienced in 1917, 1918, and how did you approach recreating it? Well, for us, it was very important, not just for sound, but for every department, to really get into the main character's head and express, in this case with sound, what he might at any moment feel uh, and make that palpable, make that visceral, make that physical for the audience. Uh, and that has a lot to do with, yeah, making it subjective. The perspective is really important to creep into his head and have the bullets fly around his head, have them pan from left to right and past him. And and um, and obviously there's very little records of what existed, but we didn't want to, and I'll let Frank and Marcus speak to it, we didn't want to fall back on tropes or cliches that have been used a lot, like certain bullet types, or, you know, the typical one I would say is, uh, you you get into an explosion and then afterwards your ear beeps, you know, you have tinnitus. So we avoided those things, but we tried it. We tried to, um, let's say that, for example, there's, a, uh, the, there's a, a bomb attack on a bunker and the bunker collapses. And afterwards, it becomes incredibly silent. And we just hear like er wet earth trickling. And it's what the, the thing that Paul Boimer, who's lying in this darkness, uh, our hero, is li lying in this darkness underneath the earth. Um, and he's, he's, this is what he hears. That's what's closest to his ear. And so we imagine that. We try to imagine what does the main character hear? Obviously, no one knows what the what the what the explosion sounded but we try to get sounds that sort of capture a, a, a an old an older feeling and yet are very you know an attack on the senses as well while that was also really important to us preserving a sense of poetry once in a while uh, with the nature shots for example to create a sense of relief and a sense of yearning also of what we're losing, of where we try to get back to. I mean, the movie starts with a shot of foxes, young cubs sucking on teats on a on a on a mother's uh, on a on a on a fox's fox mom's teats and drinking milk, and that's sort of the origin where we try to get back to, right? What we lose in the in in this movie, and we're always yearning. I wish I were there, and I wish it was warm, and I wish I were protected with with mom, you know, like as a baby. And um, the sense of family, sense of warmth, and sense of belonging. And we lose that throughout the film, that the characters lose it. And once in a while, 
the echoes of that with the nature shots with there's a big scene where Paul falls into a crater and kills a Frenchman and sort of discovers that he's become a killing machine and that he's he he sees his soul dying in front of him and 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 at the end of that scene he wakes up out of the stupor and he hears birds sing and for me uh what are the birds called swift birds or swallows i think they're sort of uh swift they're summer for me they're the sound that's the sound of summer and this is 198 the winter of 1918 so probably one of the worst winters in the last 100 you know in the last centuries uh and there was the one most, you know, with a lot of bloodshed and a lot of 17, me, pe- 17 million people have died. And, and yet this boy wakes up and sort of hears the sound of summer and the sound of peace and in the middle of all this battle. And these little sounds to create a sense of relief and create a sense of w- what this character yearns for is, 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 it was very important to us. Very well said. And I, I think it's a good time for us to uh, queue up the first of the clips that we received from Netflix uh, to, take a, to take a listen to. This is uh, our main character, Paul, that we've discussed uh, in this particular sequence. He and his group get the order to leave their trench and to charge across the uh, kind of nomad's land. And they, they enter into the French trench and start to uh, have hand-to-hand combat with the French soldiers. So we'll take a listen to this clip. Lars, I would love to hear from your perspective about mixing the sequence together and, and how you, because obviously there's just such a tremendous amount going on. But in, in, in the spirit of what Edward was saying when we first started, uh, I love the sense of directionality and clarity and focus. I feel like maybe in this mix, more than anything else, you were subtracting rather than adding. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a... Uh, um... I don't know. I, I yeah. I'm I'm sure we've we've raised a couple of elements here and there, but like I I would say, ninety percent of the time during the final, we just try to find those elements that would make a real difference and and subtract those. So, um, one thing for for instance, um, especially in those bigger battle sequences that we found out after a while was there because Frank and Marcus had had several layers of of fighting sounds of guns and crowds shouting and so there there was a these helped to create a, a sense of density um or also in, in in terms of depth of field and all of that but um having one of the one certain layer of those gunshots which was actually the furthest away or not having it would make make a tremendous difference about how much of that battle you could actually take. And in a sense, um, because you also asked about like, okay, how how do, did we approach like recreating the, the reality of, of those battles? Uh, in, a, in a sense, the, like the, the density of everything, um, it, it was not, it, we had a, had, had an urge to try to make it um, sort of, pay tribute to to what those soldiers uh, reported back to to their families in, in letters but um one of the things that we noticed during the mix that was even more important was like how do we keep it bearable for the audience and that's why subtracting was so so hugely important to to find that one element that would just break the line or or, or just um be the last drip of water and then the bucket would overflow and and so that that's like a lot of subtraction and just finding the right beats and the right passages of just taking one layer out and then it would be just feel like okay that's just about right i was amazed last when we went into the mix and i sat in the back uh and there's probably 200 tracks open or something you know and, and well i don't know how you know it already seems like a lot and it's just a mess 
you know i mean it's already really well organized and but it's just too loud and too many things happen at once and then to sort of in in this really diligent process of selecting the right sounds and with frank and marcus having the right instinct of what where they want to steer this scene emotionally then slowly it became sort of the sculpture that Lars chipped away at, and then in the end, sort of you have this this thing there. And but it took every scene; just it basically, I felt revisited a little bit about like in the shoot, where I went in the morning to set, and I thought, oh God, we're going to have to go through the mud again today and get these all of these shots. And we're never, ever going to get them. And we're never, ever going to get this done. This is exactly what I thought each morning in the mix before each scene where I thought, oh, we, how, we, how are we going to find the right the, – we're never, ever going to find the right sound, you know. And then slowly, bit by bit, uh, Lars and Frank and Marcus chiseled away at it and, and uh, uh, revealed this beautiful thing underneath. I think one of the other things that was um... – that's sticking out to me in, in terms of the, the mix and, and the character of the film or the, the film soundtrack is really that um, we, we try to keep things distinct. So, and, and also in terms of the dynamics of the film, it's not just that we go from loud to low to quiet and, and it, there's a, there's a lot of shifts of, of density and, um, and often, and, and also in terms of uh, spatial width, so there are a couple of scenes which are really basic and very, very narrow, very quiet and, and, and concentrated. But then there are also quiet scenes that are wide because there's, there's some wind moving and, and there's just one element coming from the side. And, and then again, that becomes overwhelming and it's this mass of everything. But even in the mass of everything, we try to keep the focus for, for the audience to, to have something to hang on to. Um, because we want to guide the audience in a way that it it still they can follow what uh, what what Paul and and his friends are going through in those battle scenes. By the way, the sound design also created an immense amount of scale to the movie. In essence, we are very often in a trench. Yes, we're running across a battlefield and a big wide shots, but very often we are on faces of actors in trench in small places uh and in confined places and i just remember for example the effect the crowd recording had on me uh when one you know on set i probably didn't even but because a lot of the actors the the smaller actors were uh, czech and they had, didn't have the right accent in german and they were i knew they were going to be off camera so i knew okay i can record this guy in berlin um, and we really had to be diligent with where we would spend the money. So I'm not going to fly in an actor for a line that is off camera, barely audible. You know, so uh, shouting some command. And so, um, so there's this anyway. There's a command of camera, and maybe this guy was uh, properly uh, um, a German with a proper accent, so that we could use it. But then Frank and Marcus recorded so many crowds that passed on this one command down the trench for like, it felt like a kilometer, you know, like 600, 800, uh, thousand yards. You felt like, okay, the command is passed. And you suddenly from the face of an actor, you felt he was standing in a trench that was a kilometer long. When we talk about the sound for this film, it's easy to focus on the battle sequences and the, the, the big major, uh, kind of set pieces like that, but there were so many. You talk, you, you you've all talked about dynamic range, but I, some of my favorite sound moments in this movie are very quiet and very specific. After that first uh, battle sequence in the trench, when Paul is walking along and he steps on what turns out to be his friend's glasses. When I heard that crunch and then I saw the next shot is the glasses lying in the mud, immediately I knew what had happened. And it was just such 
an emo- I had such an emotional response that was triggered by that sound. Uh, I thought that was just a genius moment. And then, you know, the, the night when they're driving, they're being driven to the, to the front and uh, it's very tense. And you, Edward, you stage that in a wide shot on the road with all these vehicles and one by one, they turn off their headlights as they get closer to the front so that they won't get shot at. But it's a very simple scene, but we just hear each vehicle turning off its lights. And uh, to me, that's just very powerful storytelling through sound. I'm so glad you noticed those. And those sounds are sometimes uh, too loud for what they realistically would be. Obviously, headlights turning off don't have a sound. And those glasses, I remember us talking, it's pretty loud for a pair of glasses in the mud, you know, like it's, it's almost like a window breaking. But it's it's just to Paul. It sounds it's that's the sound that Paul it goes through his bones. That's really the the thing we try to chase, like to constantly think about. You know, whose perspective are we currently in? Like, are we with Paul coming out of that the rubble of the bunker, and then like his after having this hearing loss moment, like having his hearing actually heightened, so this tiny glass sound becomes, you know, a little bit larger than life, but just this tiny, this tiny bit to keep it uh, naturalistic as well. Uh, more, for most of the time, this is kind of a, I think, a key idea for the soundtrack on this film to not have it. There are very few moments that are actually designy in a way, you know, designy in a artificial way. We always, uh, we obviously create all these like hearing, uh, like these, these, um, uh, bubble moments uh, acoustically, but they're always kind of based on, uh, I would say, simplistic idea, not, uh, let's say, like um, naturalistic ideas for sounds that we use and how we use them in the film without becoming like overly, you know, drench- drenching everything in reverb and all these tricks of the trade that we all know. And so, yeah, that's kind of a, that, that was a kind of a, uh, a path we try to follow on this one. Another one of my favorite sound moments uh, comes after uh, when, after the after the uh, the German soldiers uh, storm the French uh, trench and they they find all this amazing food and they're so starved. Edward, you take us on such a roller coaster of emotions through this film. There's, there's been a very, very visceral hand-to-hand combat in the trench, then almost a lighthearted moment when the German soldiers find all this food and they start to gorge themselves. And then my favorite sound moment, one of my favorites in the film, when we start to hear the rumbling of the French tanks that are coming and that wonderful shot with all the rats disappearing, uh, and then, and then the French tanks show up. So can you talk, uh, Frank and Marcus, about building that particular sequence when the French tanks show up and Lars about mixing it, please? When they enter the kitchen, they're really grabbing all the food they, they can find. And it was actually a great um, Foley job. Um, um, you hear lots of Foley then, and it really makes it real. And then all of a sudden the rumble starts and... Um, at at that point of of the story, the, these soldiers had not yet faced um, tanks of of that size, so they didn't really know where all the rumble was was coming from. And um, so th- they leave the these uh, sort of field kitchen in a hurry and and line up in the trenches. And and for us, sound wise, um, we thought about how we could um, support that um, well mystery so to speak because um as i said they, they didn't know where this was coming from so um we we had the choice of either well creating this big wall of engine sounds of a tank division approaching but then we thought it would be more interesting to 
focus just on the effect that these tanks had. So the, as you mentioned, the vibration, the shaking, uh, and these, these rats. And I think we also added, uh, like little jumping pebble stones when they're, when we are seeing them in the lining up in the trenches, although we don't see the stones jumping, but it added, uh, the feeling that they had. And then, um, so the idea really was to, to go with them in terms of like keeping the mystery up and, um, and then just when these, um, tanks appear at the horizon, that's, that's where we finally start hearing them all before. It's also like, um, rather ominous sounds that echo through the fog. So it's kind of mirroring what they see because they didn't really see the tanks. Uh, so we kind of, we try to mirror that in the sound. And then once the tanks uh, show up, then all hell breaks loose, so to speak. I mean, this probably go also goes back to your question about how accurate uh, can you be in such a film? You know, who 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 knows how stuff sounded back then, etc. Um, so, but pretty early on, we decided to not approach this challenge by trying to be ultimately scientifically accurate to have the exact proper gunshot, the exact grenade impact the exact tank sound of that time because in in the emotion of of these scenes you always want to be you know tell the story from the emotional point of view it it doesn't really it doesn't really help that scene for example that you mentioned if you had the the ultimate 100% super accurate sound of the of those um of the belt drives you know grinding or the engine sound etc so we we just wanted to, these these tanks to become these iron mon monsters, kind of referring to the the war machinery that was ongoing, and the soldiers being these characters trying to avoid becoming the very soil they were wading through, you know, and all that that kind of that was a kind of the idea and the approach approach behind the sound, and uh, yeah, to to always think about the emotion in 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 these scenes and less about you know, is this really the absolute accurate engine from 1918 at, at the right RPM, etc.? That's uh, in in other films that that's totally fine, but in this one, it felt kind of wrong to to chase chase down that road. And then in the end, who who knows? You know what what that uh, what war really sounds from, especially when you're in that extreme situation. In that whole sequence with the with the tanks approaching, um, I think. At least once they come out of out of out of that uh, bunker with all the food, um, another element that that starts changing everything is the music that kicks in, and that was a big challenge during the mix finding the right way of how to integrate music and and sound effects with each other because we have this low rumble and also the music starts on a very ominous note. So everything blends quite easily with each other, which is fine for a while. But once, like like Marcus said, hell breaks loose, then um, it was really important to have a sense of separation between music and and the sound effects, because otherwise you don't you're losing the beat of the music. And once you lose lose that, then um, you you sort of really lose the music, or you have to push it too hard. And so that was a very delicate. Um, balance and, and actually a delicate transition of finding the right levels of how how to set this up so we don't end up uh, louder and, and everything than, than necessary. Last mentions a point about these tanks and the music kicking in. It, a big theme was also the war machine, the relentless machine that just doesn't stop. And so the music sort of intonates or sort of tries to capture that essence of the tank that will just go. And even if there's a body in front, it'll just drive over it. And no bullet can stop it. It'll just continue to go. This, this spaceship basically just plows through human life. And so a lot of the times we try to find sounds that, you know, sort of capture this feeling of the machine, the grinding machine, the machinery that moves forward, 
and just is unstoppable and w won't halt in front of, especially will gobble up this youth and innocence that these kids bring to the trenches. It's that realization um, with the music that we had one day when, when Volker uh, Battleman, the composer, was in the mix that we have to keep the the beat element, which is really relentless in a way. Uh, we had to keep that alive and prominent in a way um, to make the whole cue work and, and to make the whole scene work and, and hold fit together much, much better. So um, uh, that was also a great collaboration with the composer coming in and, um, and sitting with us and, and, and just, yeah, watching the film and, and, and discussing how, how we can improve the overall. And that was, just really, really good to, to have that. I'm glad you brought this up because I, I made a note that I wanted to ask you all about uh, Volker Bertelmann's score. Uh, it's not it's not at all what I was kind of expecting for a war movie set in 1918. Uh, certainly, in terms of instrumentation, um, it's it's a it's a really arrest arresting and interesting score. So, Edward, maybe if you could start, just kind of what were your conversations with Volker about the approach to the score? Um, and and what you needed him to accomplish, and then how did the score fit in, uh, into Frank and Marcus's sound design? I basically told him three or four things. I showed him the movie, and I said, uh, the first thing was like, please give me a soundtrack that I've never heard before, because I know when I suddenly, what it can add to a movie. It can elevate it to a completely different field, and, and it give, can give it a completely different feeling. Uh, this movie with strings would have had a completely different effect on the audience. So that was one thing, like something we're unexpected and that we haven't heard before. The next thing was destroy the images. Don't beautify it, but just sort of work against them. And yeah, destroy. I mean, I, I really said destroy them. And that was the best. Uh, I, that was the only thing I could so saying he understood that cryptic message for some reason. And then the third, uh, again, comes back to the character. Uh, don't, you know, let's not sentimentalize or over-emotionalize. Let's try to find the sound that is in Paul Boimer's stomach, what he feels in his gut at any given moment. And let's try to find a note for that. And Volker went home and thought about it. And actually, two days later, he sent me a little, little clip an MPEG or MOF or whatever you call it. And, um, and he said, um, uh, and, and, and there was a, there was a, uh, this three tone theme was on it. Uh, the do, 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 these three sounds and the first cue actually he had done. And I immediately felt that it was the, the and that was the basis for our, for the movie, um, uh, for the entire soundtrack. It, it, uh, we based it all on these three sounds and he sent it after two days and I felt it sounded almost like Led Zeppelin and I really liked that. And uh, it, it, it was actually an, a, a harmonium that he had inherited great-great-grandmother and that he sort of refurbished and put through a Marshall amp. So it's a very analog recording uh, not electronic, but it sounds electronic. It sounds like, you know, Einstein's and Neubauten, you know, that, that kind of destruction of, of, of sound or deconstruction of sound that he used. And, um, he, um, and, and so, so the harmonium is an instrument also that you pump air into with your knees and your feet. It's like a piano, but you pump air into it and you hear the insides of this, of this, instrument the crackling the the pump of it, the breath the breathing and uh and that became part of the theme too the breathing the machinery of the of the of this instrument sort of helped uh you know bring that that theme across that we always thought of of the war machine there's a good example for that as well for these let's say um extra sounds that Volker provided through this instrument is the the uniform montage at the beginning where we see the uniforms being recycled and the kind of the circle, the endless circle of, uh, you know, uniforms being put on the next uh, batch of soldiers being sent uh, to the front. 
So there's this undercurrent of the rhythm of the harmonium underneath that sequence, which kind of uh, circles back to Edward's idea of the war machinery, where he asked us to find like a like a, a sonic a, a sonic representation of that machinery, the 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 factories and and the heavy iron mills. Uh, creating all this machinery for the war and have a representation on the sound side. So there's this pumping like steel mill sound underneath that's combined with Falker's music over that sequence, over the, the sewing machines and stuff like that. So there's, there's also a very, um, it, it, we try to, we had a, we had a couple of conversations with Falker where we tried to work back and forth a couple of ideas kind of blending sound design and music into each other and kind of creating like a third thing uh, from both uh, sides. So there was a good amount of uh, collaboration in that area as well, which was really kind of, it's it's really what this, this film is kind of a standout for me because the whole collaboration throughout the entire team in, in you know, amongst our department and the production sound mixer, Victor, and even Edward, you know, picturing him fighting f for getting all these wild tracks and crowds on set. And it, it's just a, it's very a unique experience, this, this film. And I think it all adds to what it became in the end. It was really kind of rewarding, I must say. Yeah, very much so. And I appreciate the, um, the conversation about the, the war machine and kind of how that actually dovetails in the sound of war. Frank, you brought up the, the sewing machine, that factory sequence. And, I mean, you know, Edward, you were talking before about hard cuts and sound and, and, and how that kind of jars the viewer. But one of the things that I noticed was the amazing use of sound and sound design as a transition element. And I loved, there was that, that particular sequence I made note of with the, the factory sewing machines that then becomes the machine gun sounds on the field. And then that becomes like the, 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 one of the truck engines, like I, I, you guys, you were very poetic about your use of sound as well, not just hard cuts. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I accept the thanks on behalf of the sound crew. <laughs> That's probably the only sequence where Edward were, was really looking for a smooth, uh, almost like a morph or transition that you describe to, to the truck. Otherwise it was pretty, it's pretty hard cut otherwise. There was also that that transition to the first battlefield, like which is basically just from the from the trees onto the battlefield, and it seems so super simple now. And I think I don't know, we did five or six versions of that because Edward was never quite satisfied. Of there was something like in in the in the really like micro timing of how things blend that really just needed to to find its place. So. It really shows like how how precise Edward's uh, imagination is already about something, how he wants things, which is the the real key that helps us do our job the way we do it, um, and with the the I don't know with a um, uh, with the degree of of, um, of precision that we try to put into it. Um, it it's that precise idea that he's able to to bring to us um that's the key that's great well you guys have been very generous with your time before i let you go i just have one one sort of final question which is <clears throat> frank you were saying that you and edward earlier on were having discussion about the power of mono and downhill racer but happily for us on this podcast this movie is not in mono you were natively working in dolby atmos through the beginning and all the way through the process. So my final question for all, uh, for all of you is uh, about Dolby Atmos, what storytelling possibilities did, did that unlock for you? And what are, what are your favorite Atmos moments in the film? This film was, was just, this film is so Dolby Atmos, like almost not no movie before that I worked on because there's so many reasons to use Atmos in this film, you know, starting with grenades flying in from a, from overhead, then the bunker scene where stuff is actually coming down on the soldiers from above and all those, those, those moments. And then the, the, the sound transitions that we create in those, like the, 
the 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 sound bubble moment during the tank attack where he sees his his comrade die um that's just everything's just there's so many moments where stuff is rotating like crazy around and with really thanks to the full range surrounds especially there's so much uh freedom to play and with positioning without stuff becoming like essentially like speaker phones in the surrounds to keep the fidelity going is like really key to creating this immersive uh immersive soundscape that is not distracting at the same time just because something moves to the side walls of the theater it doesn't change the fidelity uh, so much so it doesn't pull you out as a technical gimmick in a way so yeah it was really i mean atmos was a godsend on this one so yeah it's it's quite the opposite of mono even though we did some scenes are quite mono i must say but it's all about like you know it brings us back to the idea of doing contrast nothing's more boring than doing the same thing the whole time so uh yeah create contrast so Atmos was of great help for that. There's a there's a scene where uh, the headmaster gives a speech in the beginning, and I remember we spent a long time mixing that because the the, the camera is on the tower cam and it does a 360 degree pan while it goes down while it cranes down it does a 360 degree pan and ends up on the speaker and we wanted to be again truthful to the perspective and do what sort of where Paul is in this mass. And so where he hears this, this speech from. And so we started out panning it from all the way on the left to all the way through every speaker in the back and then all the way on the right and then ending up in the front, like with the movement of the camera uh, in sync. And that just became a bit after, like, like we did probably five versions of that and doing more, doing less. And then it, we decided in the end, it's a bit too gimmicky and we left a lot left and right and just put very little in the back, yeah, um, or nothing. In the end, we cut we cut Atmos. I'm sorry, we cut the, we cut the But uh, again, it's about, you know, t taking, and it's experimenting with that and having that opportunity of having the possibility to do it in the back and then realizing you know, for this shot, it doesn't quite work. But for the next shot where someone speaks or where the bullets need to fly, we really need to make use of that. Um, so it was an interesting, a really interesting journey of uh, and mixing experience that scene. I think that that's that's exactly the point. It, it's, it gives you a, a, a wider range of contrast in, in many aspects, like in, in terms of loudness, in terms of width, in terms of uh, density. Um, and, and that's, why it's been so so such a given that we could use the whole palette of what was available and then just choose the right amount for each moment like edward said and in in that moment with the with the headmaster the right amount was just keeping it on the front and give it a little bit of shift left and right and but in other moments no that's not what we need we need the full full spin so I think that that was for me that was really um the, the big advantage of of mixing it in Dolby Atmos and and really doing the theatrical mix that that's what we first did and and that was all we focused on and then taking it down the line afterwards what was maybe also special about mixing in Atmos on this film was because the the way the story is told is so uh, subjective we're we're focusing during the battle, uh, the, the camera is focusing for 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 long stretches on on just Paul. So a lot of the battle activity had to happen off screen uh, because the battle still needs to go on. And so therefore, Atmos was perfect because um, while we were focusing on on Paul um, in the front in the center, um, everything else had to happen and. Um, but of course, we wanted to avoid to muddy everything up. So uh, therefore, it was just uh, gold, uh, really, to, to make that work. Fantastic. Well, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Dolby podcast. It was a real pleasure, uh, first of all, watching the film. It's extraordinary work. And as I said, uh, an amazing honor for you all to be on the, uh, 
the best sound shortlist uh, for the Academy Awards. So congratulations and good luck. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Victor, so much. Lars, Frank, Edward, Marcus. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking Thanks, to you. Thanks, Glenn. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thanks once again to Edward, Frank, Marcus, Lars, and Victor. And many thanks again to our friends at Netflix who helped us put this conversation together with all these folks from a continent away and provided us with those clips. As I mentioned up top, All Quiet on the Western Front is currently streaming on Netflix in stunning Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. As always, we will have a link for you in our show notes. Before you go, I'd like to remind you to please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. With awards season heating up, you can expect many more episodes just like this one in case you need a little help filling out your Oscar ballot. If you happen to be an Academy voter, or if you just want to do a little better in your annual office pool, you can find a link to our show on all the major platforms in our show notes, or just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks again for listening.